electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Are we in a down market? The relentless rally we've been in this year seems to be petering out. The S&P down five of the last six sessions. Today could make it six out of seven. Are we headed for a 10% pullback like Carter Worth and, other, Worth and others have been warning? We will debate that in just a moment. But energy is bucking the trend once again. And the sector is up in a tough tape as crude oil hits its highest point of the year. And that could push headline inflation higher again. In fact, we'll look at the tug of war between inflationary pressures there on the one hand and those deflationary trends out of China. And from toxic train derailments to leaching lead cables and forever chemicals in tap water, meet a company that's made it their business to clean up these environmental messes. The stock up more than 7% on earnings today. The CEO joins us ahead. First, though, let's get the read on all of this red, Dom Chu. It is red. It's fractionally so, so it's not severe, not as much as yesterday. But still, we are seeing that slowing momentum. I'll get into that kind of divergence in just a few seconds here, Kelly. But if you look at the overall picture for the Dow Industrials, you're off about one half of 1%. 30,160. It's a 153 point decline for the Dow. The S&P is at 4473. It's down 25 points, half of 1% declines there. At one point today, we were actually up about three points, down roughly 38 at the lows. That is your trading range so far today. And again, watch the 4427 level. That represents the 50 day moving average of the S&P 500. That's the level some traders are watching. The Nasdaq composite off one full percent, 141 points to the downside, 13,743 is the last trade there. Kelly mentioned some parts of slowing momentum in the market. One place we are seeing it is in a red-hot sector so far this year, industry group, and that is computer chips, semiconductors. Right now, we're seeing that mean reversion play out once again. The worst-performing stock on the day so far in the S&P 500 is NVIDIA, down about 4%. Broadcom, down 3.5%. Advanced Micro, down 2.5%. On Semi, down 2%. Four of the bigger laggards in the S&P 500 are chip stocks right now, and the Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF is down one and three quarters percent. And by the way, it is right now trading. If it was to close here, it would close below its 50 day moving average for the first time going all the way back to May. So keep an eye on those semiconductors and then energy. As Kelly points out, high levels on a relative basis for WTI crude, the highest levels at one point today going back to November. Natural gas at one point today, the highest price is going all the way back to March. Coterra Energy, APA, among some of the exploration and production companies that are up big so far today, outperforming the energy sector spider up one and a half percent. Kelly, watch the energy trade. Maybe it's the return of value. Who knows? I'll send things back over to you. All right. It's going to be a pain, too, if it stays this way. Dom, thanks. My next guest has been warning for months of higher oil prices, and he owns several names that should benefit from them. For more, let's bring in Stan Major. He's portfolio manager at Hotchkiss and Wiley. It's good to see you again, Stan. Welcome back. Oh, thanks, Kelly. Why do you think oil is finally responding? You know, I think it's a combination of uh, a couple of things. I think, uh, you know, when you look at actions and words, uh, you know, the words were scaring the market, which was uh, work from home, uh, weak economy, uh, EVs impacting demand. But those uh, and those do factor into demand. But the 
they're not strong enough to offset uh, the demand, which has grown to what we're now consuming an all-time high right. uh, for oil use worldwide. So I think some of the strength you're seeing is on this on the demand side, very strong demand, and then on the supply side, uh, discipline from OPEC and discipline in the United States. It's weird to me that we're talking about demand at the same time we're talking about deflation in China. So is it that oil demand is high, including China, because of China, in spite of China? Just explain these kind of conflicting signals we seem to be getting. Sure. So I think it's in spite of China. I mean, we're seeing some weakness in China. We're seeing some weakness in diesel demand from trucking. Um, but even with those factors, uh, we're at an all-time high. So I think we've had some headwinds in terms of demand, um, but we're still seeing the underlying growth. So our belief was that uh, we hadn't seen the peaks in demand and that it would be strong. Populations grow um, as people become wealthier. Uh, they demand more energy, and that energy uh, comes from hydrocarbons. You always are so good at, at kind of having these figures off the top of your head. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I remember that global oil supply and demand is something in the range of like 103 versus 106 million barrels or or something to that. You know, just how how tight is the market globally? Sure, it's you know, roughly it's a little lower than that in terms of supply and demand. But you know, we think you know currently the market is probably a million to two million barrels a day under supplied seasonally. Um, but the issue is really in the short term. You know, we had some excess inventories. We released some from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The difficulty is the long run. Uh, the world economy is growing. Years from now, we're going to need more than 102 million barrels a day. The issue is supply. Where's that supply going to come from? Uh, where we see activity today, over the next year, if activity stays where it is, it's hard to see any growth out of the U.S., which produces close to 20 percent of world liquids. Um, OPEC is disciplined. Uh, a lot of other countries are seeing declining production. There's some you know, offsets to that, but the difficulty is really the long run. So yeah. we think we've got a reasonably balanced market in the short run, which is why we see prices in the 80s, uh, but the issue is the long run. Right, and it's confusing because as an energy investor, you don't really want to be investing in companies with declining production. You know, when Exxon's making a move to get into carbon capture or whatever, and when you have companies that, you know, when the Permian just doesn't look as promising as it once did, the companies that you like, you know, Cosmos, like you said, you know, some, maybe some hidden assets, Baytex is Canadian, uh, Marathon Oil, you're looking at LNG opportunities in West Africa. Can you even say, okay, I think oil's going to be structurally higher, I can just own the oil majors, or I can just own an energy ETF, or is that going to kind of leave you holding the bag, so to speak? You know, I don't think so. I think the nice thing is that, that when you own these stocks, uh, they're generating so much free cash flow, even at lower oil prices than where we are today. So they're they're generating a lot of cash. They're taking that cash and buying back stock, which isn't pricing in uh, current prices. So you know, we use, I think the crude is roughly $83. We're using 75 these companies are all generating 10 to 20% free cash flow yields. They're taking that 10 to 20% of their market cap, buying back stock. And so the free cash flow per share has grown pretty rapidly, even though production really isn't. Yeah, we. I should note, you have a lot of financial exposure as well, some of the majors like AIG. So when you kind of take a step back and look at, I don't know what we call the market at this moment. Is it just taking a breather? Is it rotation? Um, how would you explain to our viewers or to investors what you think is happening right now? Yeah, so it's, I've been doing this for over 25 years, and this is probably one of the most interesting markets. You have some very, very, very expensive stocks. Uh, you know, we'd say some of the, the larger uh, tech names look relatively expensive. 
Um, what's driven the market this year looks expensive to us. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you have places like energy financials trading at single digit multiples of earnings. So not 30 to 70 times earnings. Uh, that's the expensive stocks. You know, we have companies that are single digit, uh, seven to 10 times earnings, buying back stock, creating a lot of value for shareholders. Um, so I, I think that, you know, there are some major risks in the market, <laughs> you know, the sovereign debt crisis, potentially uh, overvaluation in very large companies. Um, but there are parts of the market that are extremely undervalued that we're taking advantage of, where you can buy things at low multiples of earnings, and they're buying back stock, returning a lot of cash to shareholders. And that's a good thing, no matter what market we're in. Right. And maybe it'll be their turn next to shine. Stan Major, we appreciate it today. All right. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Meantime, 10-year notes just went up for auction. Remember, we had that really strong three-year yesterday. It was an A+. How did we do on the longer end of things? Rick Santelli has the results. Rick? Yes, very close to yesterday's three-year. It just didn't price extra aggressively. It priced nice. A minus today, Apple minus. Let's go over all of it, shall we? 38 billion 10-year notes. The yield at the Dutch auction, a whisker under 4%, 3.999. And the metrics were very solid. Bid to cover, best since February this year. Indirects, 72.2, best since February. And even those statistics going back to February belie the trend of late that the last six, seven months have just scaled up a bit on many of the metrics for the long-dated treasury complex. If you look at direct bidders, direct bidders at 18.3% was basically the 10 auction average. It just didn't outperform like all the other metrics, even the dealers t- taking down less than 10% best since February. And if you look at the charts, you can see yields right now are hovering and making new low yields high price of the day. So investors agree with my grade of an A-. And as you look at the charts, a couple things should jump out at you. The fact that we had a big July in terms of long-dated Treasury yields going aggressively higher, that seems to have stopped. And if you look going back to October, mid-October, we had a high yield close of four and a quarter. The fact that we aren't near it, didn't trade above it last week when we were very close, and now we're moving lower under a 385 close. You heard it from me. Hmm. I would say that I would cement the four and a quarter high yield close as a significant high, whether it is the high or not over the next several plus years. That always is an asterisk. All Kelly, right. Now, I didn't me. hear him weigh in on the 10 year, but we know we'll see if Bill Ackman's listening uh, with this bet that the 30 year is going to five and a half percent. Rick, thank you very much. Rick Santelli, the 10 year is back below four percent. Despite that, one spot where we continue to see downward pressure in the markets is on the banks lately. Firms large and small are trading lower again today after yesterday's declines on that Moody's downgrade of several banks. The KRE down more than one percent on top of yesterday's four percent drop. The Financial Times highlighting that loan losses at banks are on the rise hitting a three-year high in the second quarter. And if the cycle turns, they could go higher from there. And my next guest thinks more consolidation is also needed in the sector. Here for an exchange exclusive is Ron Koshevsky, the chairman and CEO of Stiefel Financial. It's great to have you here. Welcome. You know, Kelly, it's just great to be here. You know, we spent we do so much time. Remote. <laughs> it, it reminds me of the pandemic, you know, the dog days when it would be, you know, 2020 and 2021. And it's just a reminder of, in some ways, yeah. how far we've come. Exactly. Is your firm, what's the deal with work from home? 
home these days and how much employees are back in the office? Uh, pretty much back in the office. I mean, we're, we're, we've learned to uh, the new style and some people work from home, but generally we're back at work. We, we have to be. Are uh, you hybrid? Is it four days? Is there some flexibility? It, it depends. It, it's uh, officially we're back five days, yeah. but we work with people, of course. Why do you think it is that financial firms like yourselves, Goldman, the rest, why is it so important for your industry to basically be fully back in person five days a week? Where we've seen many others that seem comfortable to have three or fewer days like that. It really is that we're an apprentice shop. We teach our people our business, okay? You don't learn it uh, in school. You learn finance, but you don't learn investment banking. You don't learn all the things that you need to do. We're a human capital business, and we train our people at work, not by Zoom. Right. Even people think it's a lot of spreadsheet jockeying and stuff like that. Um, So let's turn back. There's the financial sector down half a percent today. And every time you turn around, there seems to be another headline or or headwind. And and the capital one in particular, you know, in the longer run, seems like it could weigh on the shares. Just talk about what you think is going on with the economics of the business right now. Well, it's a lot of bad news, right? And uh, but I think that financials, as your previous guest said, that they're they're inexpensive. The cyclicals are inexpensive. A lot of the financials are trading at single-digit multiples. Uh, the the banking industry is very well capitalized, but there are headwinds. Uh, but it's to me, it's not like Moody's told me anything that I didn't know. Sure. Deposit costs are rising, deposits are more scarce, you're going to get some commercial real estate losses. These things are all in the market. Uh, the one thing I would tell you that I, that I think people need to think about is, uh, you know, on July 27th, that capital uh, increase, about 19% for the biggest banks, I think that's a big deal. And it's going to, personally, I think it's going to put a crimp, crimp on lending. Talk more about that, but what does it mean when, and, and for how long period do you think that might put a crimp on things? Well, I think it starts now. People say, oh, you can phase these things in. Well, in our business, uh, you start phasing in immediately. All right? It just, there is no such thing. And uh, so I, I believe that most banks are going through their lending book and deciding uh, where the risk uh, adjusted capital is. And frankly, uh, is it just going to make it harder for borrowers in general to find credit? Is the, are these two things related? The fact that financials are cheap? and that they have to hold more capital. And if you, you know, some of the people I talk to are worried that in order to fund the deficit down the road, they're basically gonna try to shove all of this paper onto bank balance sheets by requiring higher capital level, financial repression in other words. So when I look at it and I go, well, yeah, they're, they're trading at low multiples, but is that because the market's sniffing out that the new normal for banks just might not be a one of, har- of high ROIs for the next you know, period of time. I think, look, I think uh, in any capital system, you need a strong, healthy banks, and we're going to have that. But what the banking system is today, it's just a preview of what's going on. It's the first industry that really had to re-rate to 5% interest True. rates. And the economy, today, the market, you're seeing the market, we think it's going to move sideways. Why, why would you invest in the equities today? when you can get 5% risk-free. That basic comment is across almost any business you want to talk mm-hmm. about. It's, it's a new risk-free rate that is causing, uh, you know, the private sponsors don't want to take their companies public because the valuations have to be lower. But you can trace it all back to 5% interest rates. In other words, people go, hey, if I can get 5% for doing nothing, why go through the trouble, uh, you know, taking a company public or all of that for a return that might not be too much higher than that? Or, or in 2021, you said, I'm getting nothing. Money's free. And so I'll pay anything. Yes, exactly. Right? And that has changed. And that is, I think, the biggest change. It's going to take, take some time to work that through the market. We just spoke yesterday with the head of a 
PE firm. They do a lot of private capital. I'm sure every time you turn around, you're seeing uh, some of those headlines. How much is private credit um, really disintermediating the banks? Are there any risks with this activity when they start to have loan officers and they don't have the same capital set, you know, but they don't have customer deposits, so it's not quite the same risk. Um, but what's the significance? Do you think banks are losing share to the private credit market? I don't think there's any question about that. I, I believe that uh, the shadow banking system has been growing uh, significantly, and I think it does pose some risks. Uh, you don't have the same capital rules. You don't have the same liquidity. Uh, on the other hand, uh, they have been very important participants in this market. Uh, so probably keeping things looking better than they they might otherwise. You know, yeah, the banks sure. really had to pull back. So where are we, you know, six or nine months from now? There's plenty of people who say they still think recession is kind of lining up, but they see pressure on the consumer. Just a couple of anecdotal headlines recently, you know, the hardship withdrawals on the 401k side, consumer delinquencies picking up. Um, the, you know, I, and not that you're in the consumer facing business per se, but how are you planning? What, what do you think the economy is going to look like in six or nine months' well, time? Well, we have a million clients. I do. I do talk on the consumer side uh, a fair amount. You know what's going on is people have to remember this economy was flush. Put so much money, five trillion dollars, was put into this economy in 2021. It, it everything was liquid. Banks were flush with deposits. People had savings that they never had. All of that is just now coming down. Why are you doing 401k hardships? Because people don't have the savings that they had. So what do I think? I think that I don't think there's a real recession uh, on, on the uh, uh, equation other than one thing your previous guest said that I agree with. If there's one thing that I would be worried about, $115 oil. Oh, sure. And, and what does that mean to markets? And it's not just uh, supply and demand. It's, you know, let's remember Russia's got a little vote in, uh, in supply of oil in, in the world. So I do think that's a risk. But as I look forward, um, I believe that the markets and the consumers and everyone will adjust to a new rate environment. The thing that has to change, this isn't going, everyone who thinks that rates are gonna go back to zero or near zero anytime soon is sorely mistaken. You don't think so? Not a, no way. Which and, no. Good or bad? Well, I, I think what has to happen is we, we can't have a yield curve where the six month is 550 and the 10 years at four. That makes, that really does not make sense. It's not good for capital formation. So that, that will sort itself out. But we're not going back to zero interest rates. I think the new floor on inflation, floor is 3%, yeah. not ceiling. No, when people kind of run through the numbers and add it up, they, it's hard for them to get below that. For sure. Well, at at $115 potential oil, and and that's the things that I would uh, that I would be concerned. But overall, the banking system is very healthy, despite what you're rating. Very well capitalized, and uh, and I think uh, relatively cheap. Speaking my own book. But we haven't been through the cycle yet, and that's the only thing. When loan losses are starting to rise, and we just know loan provisions have to go up. I mean, if we slow down from here in the next couple of quarters, you know, if commercial real estate. Whatever it is, do you still think there's a shoe to drop here? I don't think it would be news to anybody to say that, well, you know, the banks also haven't yet been through what might be a slower period of this uh, cycle. I, I completely agree with that, but I think the market has discounted a lot of that in. Uh, the, the banks, uh, everyone was worried there wouldn't be a bank around and after June. 
The banks rallied, what, 20% last month? You're getting a little bit of a pullback here. I think the market has discounted a lot of this, and you see it in the valuations. It is one of the cheap sectors. Industrials and financials are relatively inexpensive in this market. And if there's a pickup in consolidation, like you're saying, that could be an interesting way well, to boost there, stock well, prices there, well, as well. there will be, too. Are you going to be involved in that? Uh, uh, always. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you mean uh, on the acquiree side. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> no. Okay. Ron, thank you so much uh, for coming in town, joining us here on set today. I thank you for having me. It's so nice to come out here and it's good to see you, to Kelly. See you. Ron Krzyzewski okay. is the CEO of Stiefel Financial. Still ahead, shares of advanced auto parts have never really recovered since that terrible earnings report in late May. The stock is down more than 50% this year, but Valvoline, which focuses on preventing car troubles, is meanwhile up almost 9% since Jan 1. They just reported earnings and announced the upcoming retirement of their CEO. First, though, he'll join us to talk shop just ahead. Also coming up, the big business behind cleaning up the environment. When governments need someone to step in after a major derailment or a chemical issue, Montrose answers the call, and the stock's climbing after they posted a beat and raised their full-year guidance. We'll speak with that company CEO next. As we go to break, here's a glance at the markets. Dow is well off the session lows, down only 72, but not quite green like it was earlier today. S&P's down a third of a percent, 44.84. Nasdaq's down three quarters of a percent, similar to the Russell, just like we saw yesterday. Strange bedfellows. Ten-year note back below yield, back below 4%. The exchange is back after this. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one 1- 844-COSENTIX. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Environmental disasters seem to be constantly in the headlines now, with reports of forever chemicals in the water supply or toxic lead cables in the ground. And fixing these problems have become a big business for companies like Montrose Environmental Group. They had a hand in cleaning up the recent train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. And the company's shares are jumping almost 10 percent today, now down to six, after reporting better than expected second quarter earnings and raising guidance for the year. Joining me now is Montrose Environmental Group CEO Vijay Mantri Pagranda. BJ, it's great to have you here. Welcome. It's great to see you, Kelly. Thanks so much for having us. So, you know, not to, to give a history lesson, but, you know, what, how this could not have been as big a business in the past as it seems to be now. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly something that uh, has taken on a lot more prominence and there's a lot more attention to it. It's something that's mattered uh, for a long time, Kelly. I mean, we all want clean air, clean water, clean soil. 
Um, and that's something that at Montrose we've been focused on for a long time. Um, but as these various disasters and regulations unfold, um, the, the opportunity set for us and the prominence of the broader environmental sector has certainly increased. Yeah. So when you saw the headlines, for instance, about the lead cables, that I mean, this could be tens of billions of dollars of cleanup. I haven't heard from the companies yet if there's any plan, but is that the type of, I don't know if that's going to be a contract, but is that the kind of thing you guys bid on or get involved with? Uh, more broadly, yeah. I mean, our, uh, you know, Montrose is an environmental peer play, Kelly. So we, um, you know, we've got about 3,500 uh, employees around the world, uh, colleagues of ours serving the private sector, um, trying to tackle some of these uh, intractable environmental challenges. Um, so that's, exactly the type of work we do uh, on the assessment regulatory side, on the testing side, and on the treatment and solution side. Um, yeah. It's a vertically integrated company, so it's a fantastic opportunity. What's set the for mix us. between government uh, customers and private sector ones? It, we are primarily private sector. Uh, you know, the government uh, in Australia, in Northern Europe, um, and state governments are a slightly larger part of the portfolio that we serve. Um, the fed U.S. federal government is still a very small piece uh, of our client base. Yeah, no, just government customers are often seen as kind of the gold standard because they're so steady and, and uh, you know, that, that those funds flow for a very long time. But as we're seeing, there's more and more corporate issues as well. I live in a town that has a real bad water PFAS problem. Um, you know, it's an older town. They had a lot of uh, industry back in the day. Can you give me some hope about, you know, the, the potential for cleaning up the water where I live and where probably a lot of different people live and are facing these challenges? Yeah, it's, a, it's something that we have been very focused on for a long time. Um, we are fortunate in that we have uh, proven repeatedly we have technology that uh, can remove PFAS. Uh, it's a family of thousands of compounds, these forever chemicals from water very effectively and um, in a way that's quite sustainable. Um, and uh, we've been doing this now for years and doing it very successfully. And we're excited about the opportunity to talk about things like that in forums like this um, so we can serve more of these communities and get clean water back to them. Yeah, no, that would be that would be great. There's always a, some controversy in, in your case, or maybe in the case of CTEH, the company you merged with a couple of years ago. So the critics say because your clients are often the, the company, that there's this interest in them kind of, or in you kind of downplaying the scale and size of the damages, um, you know, to kind of, it, so that employers don't face as much exposure, I guess, would be the, the line of argument. How does that process work of putting a dollar figure and a cleanup figure on something like the East Palestine derailment? It's a, it's a fair question, and it's a great one. We, um, and it's not, our CTH team is not uh, often well understood. They are uh, a team of experts, toxicologists, uh, environmental experts that often work with the incident command team. Uh, so the client in this case is really our um, uh, incident command, which includes the federal regulators, the state regulators, the communities, uh, the first responders, EPA, FEMA, for example, making the decisions. Um, and so the, the work that we do is really in helping assess for incident command what the magnitude of the environmental damage is, um, what needs to be done, and how best to do it. But it's a very collaborative process, and we're working across the spectrum to try and bring the best solution to market. You just recently raised your guidance for the year. What's driving that? It's a broad-based uh, set of tailwinds for us. Um, we are uh, seeing demand kind of across our uh, advisory, our testing, and our treatment solutions uh, part of the business. And we're feeling really good about kind of what the future looks like for us. And so 
Um, we've had a great first half of the year. The rest of the year looks really good. Um, and the 24 to 26 plus time frame is looking even better. So we're kind of coming off of a really optimistic outlook. Should, should we be uh, nervous about that? Do you know something that we don't hear? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just that this is something that's increasingly important, uh, right, for communities and for all of us. Um, and as a business, we're trying to we're trying to kind of live up to our mission of helping to protect the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the soil that feeds us. And that's resonating. Last quick question. You're about a billion-dollar market cap right now. How fragmented is this industry, and, and how much could it be consolidated in the future? It's a, you know, this is a $1.3 trillion industry, uh, according to uh, third-party experts. And so we are just early days, um, and we think that there's a lot of opportunity to grow organically and to continue consolidating and bringing teams of folks, um, both expanding geographically, but also in terms of our expertise to address the very problems you talked about, Kelly, uh, whether it's lead cables or PFAS and water or reducing greenhouse gas emissions. All right. Well, you know, unfortunately, now we know who to call the next time a crisis hits, maybe get some insight into cleaning things up. Vijay, thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. Love it. Thank you so much. Vijay Mantri Prakanda with Montrose. Coming up, it's the deal everyone's talking about today. Disney's ESPN teaming up with Penn Entertainment to launch a sports book. We'll get the details behind the agreement and what else investors will be watching when Disney reports after the bell today. The exchange is back after this. The Dow's down only 66 points. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Good afternoon and welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson. With your CNBC News update, special counsel Jack Smith got a search warrant for former President Trump's Twitter account as part of his criminal investigation. That is according to a newly unsealed court filing. The company, now known as X, was also fined more than $300,000 for a delay in producing those records. It was also barred from telling Trump about the warrant request. Meantime, Norfolk Southern has agreed to improve conditions for workers and rebuilding and the cleaning up of the site of its February train derailment and chemical spill. The settlement with the Labor Department will also implement a medical surveillance program and provide union employees with training for future derailments. Google and Universal Music are reportedly in talks to license artists' voices and melodies for AI-generated songs. That's according to the Financial Times. The music industry grappling with deep fake songs which are made using generative AI and mimic an artist's voice, often without their consent. The reported aim of the talks is to develop a tool for fans to create legitimate tracks and pay the owners for the rights. We shall see, Kelly. Back to you. All right, Tyler, I'll see you soon. Thanks very much. Coming up, Valvoline shares on pace for their ninth day of declines out of the past 10, but they just hit an all-time high three months ago. We'll talk about the big business of getting your oil changed after the break.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Valvoline down almost 2% today, despite stronger than expected earnings. The automotive supply and service company did lower their full-year guidance. Still, they also reported 12.5% same-store sales growth from the previous year and a big C-suite change, with longtime CEO Sam Mitchell retiring at the end of next month. But first, he joins me now in a first on CNBC interview. Sam, welcome. It's good to see you. Oh, it's good to see you, Kelly. It's good to be on the show. Why, why sail off into the sunset now? Well, it's hard, especially when the business is performing so well. But uh, at the same time, I've been with Valvoline, leading Valvoline now for 21 years. And uh, we've been through a big transformation and we've got a great successor in place in Lori Fleece. I just feel like now is the right time to make this change. Certainly. When I think of Valvoline as the oil change company, what am I missing? What is it really? We're all about preventive maintenance. And so not just oil changes, but making sure your car's safe and ready for the road. And uh, we built our model around delivering a quick, easy, trusted experience across all of our 1,800 plus stores. And uh, it's what's led to 17, 17 straight years of same store sales growth. So we're proud of uh, our track record and what we're doing, but we're real excited about where we're going with this business. You know, I'm going to kind of flip to the other part. You know, you're trying to prevent people from needing to go, I guess, to an auto zone or an auto nation uh, advance auto with a problem. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the competitive dynamics in this marketplace right now where there seems to be we had you know, because everything got confusing during the pandemic, a huge rush for cars. Prices went way up. Um, now, I guess people are just trying to figure out how to hang on to them. Um, just talk to me a little bit about the economics these days. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, the price of both new cars and used cars has gone up significantly. And as a result, people are hanging on to the cars longer. The average age of a car is now over 13 years. So wow. it means that preventive maintenance is just that much more important. And so that's our sweet spot is taking care of cars, doing the preventive maintenance, the quick, easy, trusted services that people rely on us for. And, uh, you know, that demand for convenience just keeps on growing, you know, especially here in the U.S. People want to make sure that you know, they're having their service done at a location where they, they know that the people are well-trained and doing the job right, but they can do it quick and fast, make it convenient for them. That's what is really driving the performance in our business, our ability to do that consistently across our system. Yeah, you know, I think you guys could be a candidate for kind of, um, you know, under-the-radar economic indicator, because I have to imagine when times get a little tough, people might hold off on things like preventative maintenance. You know, you got to take care of the emergency before you can prevent it. It, are you seeing anything now? Your trends look pretty good. You just raised your guidance. Are you seeing any signs that consumers are kind of, you know, pulling back a bit? You know, not at all. And th this is what's so great about our business and being in preventive maintenance, because the consumers don't pull back on preventive maintenance. When they know that they're not going to be buying that new car, they know it's that much more important to take care of the car that they have, that they rely on to get to work, to get the kids to school. And so uh, we're in a sweet spot where even when the economy slows a bit or people's pocketbooks might be pinched, it doesn't impact our performance. And so it's all about, you know, bringing that value to our customers each day. And that's, again, back to convenience and getting those those uh, simple tasks done that keep that car, you know, ready for the road. What's the highest margin part of the business? And what's it been like dealing with labor costs and availability the last couple of years? Yeah, this business is, you know, carries very strong margins. And so our EBITDA margins are in the mid 20% range and continue to grow as we grow volume and create leverage in the system. And so across all of our services, it carries a good margin. Yes, labor has gone up significantly over the past few years. And so it's important then that we manage labor efficiently. 
and that we capture that leverage in our margins as we grow that top line. So the quarter that we just reported, you know, as the graphic shows here, revenues up 19%, profit uh, EBITDA was up um, 28%, close to 28%. So the business performance, you know, is really strong this year. And, you know, again, we're bullish on what we can do in the years ahead. Yeah. And you've sold that parts business to Aramco recently. Um, so what would you say if you had to kind of summarize your tenure? What was the goal for Valvoline? And what do you think the, the next uh, sort of period of leadership will will want the company to look like and feel like? Yeah, in the past, you know, we've grown a really solid business and, you know, we took it through an IPO and a separation from Ashland back in 2016. And since then, you know, we invested aggressively in the growth of the retail business. That product side of the business uh, that we sold, you know, generated a lot of cash and that was poured into the retail business. And we've taken our stores from roughly a um, little over a thousand stores in 2016 to over 1800 stores today. We believe that number is going to go to 3,500 stores as we continue to invest in that growth, along with our franchisees, expecting to grow to 3,500 stores, you know, close to the end of the decade. So um, that's where we're going next is not just driving, you know, strong same-store sales performance, but continuing to build our network. We're only reaching about, you know, we have about a 5% share of the preventive maintenance business today, and our stores reach about 30% of the household's. Um, that are, say, within a 10-mile driving distance. And so that number, you know, has got a lot of room for growth. Yeah. And so as we add network growth to the same-store sales performance, evolve our business model over time, you know, it, it is a, a really strong business model, and that's the challenge for Lori and the team is to keep that momentum going and uh, deliver on the opportunity. I did take a little straw poll of our team. A lot of, a lot of people still just go to the dealer for that service. Yeah, you know, the big difference between Valvoline and going back to the dealership is one of time and convenience. Yeah. And I think value, too. So um, there's, you know, when we look at our market share growth, we know that we're taking growth, not just from competing quick loops, per se, but also the dealerships, tire and repair, those DIYers who kind of age out of DIY into <laughs> do it for me behavior. So a lot of sources for growth that's behind that consistent uh, same-store sales performance as we grow our market share. No, it's bad. Hey, listen, I'm thinking of defecting, to be honest. I can't get up there. It's, it's, it's out of the way. Uh, yeah, Sam, I'll never look at a Valvoline the same uh, now that I understand the business a little bit better. Thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And congratulations. All right. Thanks again, Kelly. Sam Mitchell, CEO of Valvoline. Still ahead, Bob Iger telling our own David Faber just last month that Disney's linear TV business may not be core to the entertainment giant and said he's also considering a strategic partner for ESPN. Well, now ESPN is moving into sports betting, teaming up with Penn Entertainment, whose shares are up almost 10 percent today. So what exactly is Disney up to? We will talk about that and preview its earnings when the exchange comes right back after this. Welcome back. A bombshell sports betting deal and a big move for ESPN and Disney. What does it reveal about CEO Bob Iger's larger plans for the struggling media giant? And will tonight's earnings report provide any more clues? We turn to Julia Borson with those questions. Hi, Julia. Hi, Kelly. That's right. Well, I think that this ESPN deal to launch its first sports book really indicates that Bob Iger is looking for new revenue streams and he's willing to go into uncharted territory in order to generate some new revenue. And I think he probably sees this sports betting business as perhaps some low hanging fruit.
Oh, Kelly. I, I was like, is she throwing to a soundbite? I'm sorry. Okay, no. yes. No, so the, all of this said, the larger question is, where is he going from here? Is he prepping the company for a sale, right? He's clearly stripping away a lot of these different... Um, I don't know what you'd call them, distractions. The theory going around today is that he's trying to make it more palatable, palatable for someone like Apple down the road, perhaps. Well, there's been a lot of speculation. Um, analyst Laura Martin from Needham has speculated that Disney would be a great acquisition target for Apple down the road if it were to divest of certain assets. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think he's seeing the fact that ESPN has stayed away from really engaging in sports betting up until now. But now that so many states are uh, have legal sports betting, there is this huge financial opportunity. And he wants to make sure that it's not just DraftKings that's benefiting from the interest in sports betting, but that ESPN is as well. So they're going to have $150 million in revenue um, every year over the next 10 years that is going to flow directly to the bottom line from this deal um, with, with uh, Penn Entertainment and to create this new sports book. And I think what's really essential here is understanding that he's just generating new revenue opportunities from the assets they already have. This does raise the question of what he's going to do with ESPN. He said they'd be interested in having some potential minority investors. We have reported that Disney and Bob Iger have talked to all the major sports leagues, NBA, NFL, NHL, um, and MLB. And the question is whether they could get these leagues to come in as investors in ESPN and make them really benefit from the upside to bringing ESPN both direct to consumer as well as have ESPN have a linear um, platform on linear TV. So I think there's a lot that still has to be figured out about ESPN, but I do think he's just looking for more opportunities to monetize the assets they, that they already have. Yeah, and I also think it's interesting investors like Stephanie Link don't like their Hulu plans. I don't know if he would ever backtrack on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like at this point they're very much on the path of buying out the remaining stake in Hulu that Disney does not currently own, that is currently owned by Comcast, which is, of course, CNBC's parent company. It's still unclear how much they're going to have to pay um, to buy out their remaining stake in Hulu. And then the other piece of Hulu is that Disney has said they're going to be incorporating Hulu into the Disney Plus platform. And this is all to make Disney Plus stickier, to say you're getting so much content from this platform, you're not going to just cancel it when The Mandalorian or your favorite show is over for now. So it's really about generating that sort of consistent ongoing value and seeing the general entertainment appeal of Hulu as being part of that. Right. We don't know exactly what that's going to be going to look like, but it is set to happen this fall. So I think that there's a lot still to be learned about his his goal for Hulu, and then also what Hulu looks like when it's entirely owned by Disney, which we do expect to be the case. All right, Julia, for now, thank you. Julia Borson will get those results, as mentioned, after the bell. And speaking of media, don't miss an exclusive interview tomorrow with ex-CEO Twitter, CEO uh, Linda Yaccarino. It's her first sit-down interview since taking on that uh, post. 10 a.m. Eastern tomorrow. Set your DVRs, set your iPhone alarms, whatever you have to do. Don't miss it. Still ahead, Tilray diversifying away from cannabis into craft beer, while MasterCard is ditching cannabis from its debit card transactions. Why has this once bright industry fortune suddenly clouded? We'll ask the CEO of one company that still processes billions of dollars of cannabis transactions next. The exchange is back right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. It has been a tough year for cannabis stocks. 
Canopy Growth down 80%, 80 I should say. Kronos Group and Cureleaf down more than 25%. Altria down about 3%. Tilray is the lone name in the green, up about 4% this year. But is it really a cannabis play anymore? It's up 24% this week, thanks to its recent acquisition of eight beer and drink brands from AB InBev, InBev to expand its offerings into alcohol. And in another blow to the cannabis industry, in its latest earnings release, MasterCard banned the purchase of marijuana on its debit cards. Now, Moffat Nathanson's Lisa Ellis tells us the move won't make too much of a dent in MasterCard's bottom line, but our next guest says banking and access to capital is critical, critical to cannabis companies. Here for more is Kevin Hart, founder and CEO of GreenCheck, a company helping more than 130 financial institutions navigate the cannabis space. Kevin, welcome. Good afternoon, Kelly. Thank you for having me. Is it getting harder? I mean, are, why this sudden kind of turn of fortunes? Well, I, I think really, you know, MasterCard and Visa has done this previously where they just looked at uh, the volume of transactions in certain pockets of those transactions. And there is no uh, merchant um, category code available for cannabis. And they discover it and they decide, OK, that's enough. We're going to we're going to contact the banks and the providers and tell them they have to shut these programs down. It's happened before. It'll happen again. So the larger question is, I mean, were people expecting that by now we'd have kind of a federal move uh, to legalize cannabis, perhaps under the Biden administration, and that's just not panning out? Well, there are there have been a lot of expectations. I think what has it gone through the House seven or eight times and always has gotten stalled out in the Senate. And there are constant debates and there's significant amount of lobby dollars that go after this in the descheduling of cannabis as well. Um, to get Safe Banking Act passed. But Safe Banking Act in and of itself is not going to be the silver bullet or the single answer that a lot of people think it should be, uh, even when it passes. So where is, uh, we're showing the map actually right now, how many parts of the country is cannabis legal? Where is it illegal? And what does that mean for firms who are trying to do business? Well, I mean, the state guidelines are pretty clear as to what type of uh, products you can sell. You know, it's federally illegal across the country, but uh, there are 38 different state programs that are out there for medicinal and or adult use combination programs. And then you have the CBD in the hemp markets. Uh, so it's a, it's a big industry and there'll be more states coming online uh, just this next month and in the ballot uh, sessions in November. Will there, though, this feels like the kind of moment where we've seen a reversal of the kind of, you know, unrelenting progress of a lot of social movements, whether it's abortion or other controversial issues where they're now being rolled back. I mean, would you put cannabis in that territory of something where, you know, it's just, just explain what you think kind of the grassroots is or is it just not as good of a business? I've read plenty of stories saying, you know, black market pot is still as popular as ever and a lot of mainstream cannabis products just haven't really cracked with the consumer yet. I don't I don't think it gets rolled back in, you know, primarily because there are, you know, you hear the stories of the things that aren't going well, but there are thousands of stories where um, businesses are being run properly and, and within the state guidelines for the programs. Also, you have to remember, and this is a big part of what Safe Banking Act will be and descheduling, et cetera, the amount of tax dollars that the states are picking up through these programs is significant. And cannabis is now bigger than alcohol sales tax uh, revenue collected in certain states. And so I, I don't think any state's going to back down from that. And the federal government is going to want their piece of the pie once it uh, once it, they decide what they want to do. And so would you describe yourself as a fintech? What is it that your firm helps clients do? 
Oh yeah, we're 100% of fintech. So we sit in the middle uh, web-based platform that connects uh, financial institutions and services providers uh, to the cannabis businesses. We have over 7,000 cannabis businesses on the platform to 140 different financial institutions, banks and credit, uh, credit unions. And we process over $750 million in, uh, in uh, deposits last month. You're not worried about going out of business? No, <laughs> we are not worried about going out of business. Uh, you know, uh, the cannabis industry is uh, still growing. And the real challenge in the future opportunity, uh, that the way we've always seen this and we predicted, is when you have interstate and international commerce, it's going to become even more complicated as a fintech for the rules and regulations, uh, how financial institutions are yeah. knowing they're letting good money in and keeping all the bad money out to the illicit market that you referenced. All right, Kevin so Hart. And not that Kevin Hart. Thank you so much for joining us. I get those phone calls. (laughs) Could have some fun with that. Thank you for joining us today to explain it. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. CEO of Green Check and founder. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.